It's something for nothing, the Rush fan cast. Jerry and Steve with you, Jer. We're in Jacob's Ladder here, I think. Yes, the clouds are rumbling in. So we could be rudely interrupted by a thunderstorm, but we're going to trudge on anyway. That's right. You can find us on Twitter, at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. Jerry, just discovered that on a lot of these podcast apps, you no longer subscribe. You follow a podcast. That's the new thing. Hmm. I wonder I wonder why the word changed, Steve. Any idea? I don't know. Call up Spotify and ask them. Is it the kids want a different word? I don't know. The kids want to follow us, Jared. They don't want to subscribe. That sounds boring. It's like a magazine. Right. What's a magazine? They want to follow us. Follow us wherever we go. <laughs> like our own kids. Exactly. Lex did the open and close baseline for us. He's fantastic as always. And Jared, here you have a great email for us. I do. I have a good email. I also have, I guess it's a correction-ish type of thing. That's not surprising. <laughs> well, uh, you remember our covers episode, right? Mm-hmm. Evidently, someone sent me the video of the marimba version of La Villa Strangiato. Oh, and you forgot who sent it to you. Yes. Okay, so you're going to correct that error in judgment. Yes, Ben sent me an email. A real short one, so I won't read it to you, but he was basically like, oh, I was so excited. I'm hoping, he says, basically, I, I hope they pick my song that I sent them. And then I say, <laughs> oh, boy, look at this cool song I found with no help whatsoever from anyone. <laughs> I think you did say that somebody sent it to you, but you forgot who it was. Yeah. If, if that's what happened. See, I even forget that. No one can trust my memory on anything. It's, it's, <laughs> You're getting old, Jar. I apologize, Ben, but please don't take it personally. <laughs> I call my kids by the dog's names first. It happens. So Ben has no chance of me remembering that he's the one who sent me the La Villa Strangiato cover. Um, so here's the email proper. This is from Mike. This is the same Mike, if you remember a while ago, wrote us about putting together a spreadsheet called Around the World of Rush in 80 Days. Oh, right. Remember yeah, that guy? I remember that. Yeah, I do. He was so excited about bringing his friends who had never seen Rush, his friends and family to the Rush show that 80 days beforehand, he sent them emails every day for 80 days. Right, right, right. I do remember. He wrote another email about our covers episode. He says, I was listening to this episode on a recent road trip with my spouse, subjecting her to another one of my Rush podcasts, as she likes to call it. She's a good egg and understands it comes with the territory. I really enjoyed the selections you presented from marimbas to a Norwegian death metal. Now that is some range. During one of the initial selections, I said to her, I bet they call out the double bass pedals on this one, which you, of course, did in the post-clip breakdown. My wife was like, did you listen to this one already? (laughs) Nope, I replied. And then the next song played out similarly. And then on the third straight clip, when I said, I bet they talk about how faithful this clip is to the original versus a more distinct interpretation, which you then, of course, did. She said, okay, I'm sorry to be concerned (laughs) that you think a little too much like these guys, which is definitely a concern. That is a concern. Anyone who thinks like me, that's a concern. Right. Uh, He goes on to say, it points out something that I have noted in the past, which is that Rush fans really like to pay attention to the details as it always pays dividends in Rush's music. And we appreciate others who do the same. I have lots of friends 
that are not as big fans of Rush, but I have noticed that many of them enjoy music as a background to what they're doing rather than what they are doing. While a lot of Rush fans prefer what I call active listening, neither approach is wrong, of course, just a matter of preference. Which is true. I, I never have music on as a background. Either I'm listening to it or I'm not listening to it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I totally do. But I don't think I have Rush on as a background. I'll pick something else. I mean, I have it on while I'm doing other things, but I'm still listening to it. Do you know what I mean? I hear. I know. I understand. And then he says, anyway, I did want to also let you know that I own the Royal Philharmonic CD of Rush covers, and I do enjoy listening to it from time to time, though I tend to prefer the songs that don't include vocals. On the clip that you played, the female performance is very pretty, and I don't mind it as much, but when the tenor comes in, it always makes me laugh to hear his operatic voice singing about subdivisions. I would rather hear the vocal melody through another instrument. I understand that CD can be an acquired taste, but to me, the point is that it takes great songwriting to stand up to an orchestral arrangement, and Rush, of course, has that. Cheers from Chicago, another free lunch destination. Nice. Chicago-style pizza, I'm in. Yes, right. Very cool, very cool. Thanks for that email. We really appreciate it. So, Jared, today on the Rush FanCast, we continue our trek through Power Windows, and track five is Territories. We are thinking that our homes, homes are set above. Other people than the ones, the ones we know and love. So, Jared, to help us discuss territories, we've got one of our first guests ever from the Something for Nothing podcast. He was on with us on episode 11 with Skip Daly. He's the co-author of Wandering the Face of the Earth and creator of 2112.net. The website is called Power Windows, and the album we're talking about is Power Windows. Eric Hansen, welcome to the Rush Fancast. How you doing? It's great to be here. Great to have you back. And why don't we start by getting your thoughts on Power Windows in general. You named your website Power Windows. You must have a special affinity for the album, I would guess. Yeah, so I became a Rush fanatic with Hold Your Fire. Just to kind of put you in the time frame, that's when I really became a, a, a nut. It was my senior year in high school. And I kind of had to work backwards to get into Power Windows because at the time I was more uh, into like true guitar, bass, mm-hmm. drums, None of the synthesized stuff. I was hardcore Led Zeppelin, you know, Van Halen, Def Leppard, and kind of took me a while to get into the synthesized sounds, but I love Power Windows. That album is just a fantastic album. It's kind of rare in the in the Rush catalog because 
I think Rolling Stone even said that it's like yes meets the Sex Pistols. Wow. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> marriage. If you think of the, the musical space. So it's got the classic Rush sound meeting the 80s synthesized movement. And I, I think that they did a great job with it. It's also Peter Collins' first album producing Rush. So I think that uh, he did a great job. And what more can you say? It's, it's a fantastic album. There's not a clunker on the entire album. That's true. And since you started with Hold Your Fire, you said, right? Yeah. And went backwards, you don't have any prejudice against the, the uh, keyboard years, as they say, right? No, none at all. I, you know, like I, like I started out with, I started back then, I did, but that's because I was a headstrong, you know, 15, 16, 17 <laughs> right, year old exactly. that didn't like sense, right. you know, synthesizer sounds or synthesized drums and uh had a buddy that was trying to push me into rush for years and it was finally uh was hold your fire that did the trick and then i quickly worked my way backwards so the song we're going to talk about today is arguably one of the best on the album and we like to start out our discussion with a quote from the band and this quote is from neil and i'm guessing you've probably heard this already eric but i'll, I'll repeat it I think what China had to offer in terms of its impact on the world, I had already taken advantage of in a song like Territories. The song was directly influenced by the Chinese attitude toward themselves. The title comes from an area around Hong Kong called the New Territories. I was struck by the sound of that word and the territorial instinct. And what with the Northwest Territories being part of Canada, it was just the right sort of word to describe what I was after. It had the right poetic sound and visual contact. That's important to me in a title. So that was the essence of it. As for the opening line about the Middle Kingdom, that's what China calls itself today. The reason for the Middle Kingdom is because it's a middle between heaven and earth. In other words, it's slightly below heaven, but still above everybody on earth. <laughs> how about that? Yeah, and I think he goes on, he talks about how that's where every region they went to, everybody thought that they were a little bit better than everybody else. So it wasn't just China. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, I mean, that's the next line of the song, right? We all figure that our homes are, our homes are set above. Mm -hmm. Yep. So isn't that the essence of the song, just in a nutshell, that people feel that they're better than others based on geography? Yeah, geography, neighborhoods, what school you go to. Religion. What sports teams you like. Yeah what hat you wear and the futility of it all. That's where he goes back. He says he'd rather be a citizen of the world. Right. And the beginning of the song, the drums are just haunting. I mean, just an amazing piece of work by Neil. It's got a kind of a tribal world kind of feel to it. Don't you think? Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't think there's a snare drum on the original studio version. I think it's all oh. toms. Oh man. That's a Have good I point. missed that all of these years? I got to listen to it now just to see if I hear that. That's crazy. Yeah, I think I read that long time ago. <laughs> what I love about the beginning of this song is, again, Neil is always the master of the hi-hat. And here, he's, he's not even really doing anything crazy. You know, it's not like uh, La Villa Strangiata where he's just, you know, going ham all over this, his hi-hat. It's just so simple, but it's so clean. And it's... Mm -hmm. Just the sound he gets out of it, each hit, you can hear every single detail of every single hit on that hi-hat. Absolutely. It's just one of my favorite things listening to the beginning of the song. 
and that's the dancing song. The dancing song? Yeah, on on uh, I've got multiple bootlegs where when Getty would introduce the song during concerts, this was the dancing song. He'd say, hey, it's time for a dancing song. <laughs> yeah, Alex would be doing his, his goofy thing. So I've got a quote, too, from Getty from Bass Player Magazine. Sometimes it's hard to tell if you're playing bass guitar or keyboard. On the verse of Territories, there's a real droning type of bass part. And then on the B part, you get into a more staccato kind of sound. Whenever you hear that low bottom end that drones underneath, it's my Moog pedals. I've been using those for years, and they're really great when I have to go to keyboards and sustain the bottom end. They have an unobtrusive bass that doesn't phase. Getty's bass work and his keyboard work on this song are just oh, yeah. incredible. And it's got the, at, during the fade out, it's when he's doing his little, his riffing on the bass. Mm-hmm. Is he saying that he doesn't know when he's playing keyboards with the bass? Like he's confused? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think he's confused. <laughs> I don't even know. He's like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I think he's saying song. you're confused, Jar. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely confused about whether or not he's playing keyboards with bass. I don't know how he does any of it. Yeah. <laughs> So we get into this, I guess, a bridge portion. In every place with a name, they play the same territorial game. Hiding behind the lines, sending up warning signs. This song's sort of a, a call for unity, don't you think? Pretty deep, yeah. I, I always think it's, it's a call for unity, but it's at the expense of, you know, first he has to demonstrate the, the problem, and the problem is that everybody is protecting their own thing. You know what I mean? Everyone's standing behind their own lines. Everyone's shooting up warning signs to the other people who are also standing behind their lines, sending up their warning signs. You know what I mean? It's just like everybody's little patch of grass, like you said, Eric, whether or not it's a country, a county, a town, your own yard, your Mm -hmm. favorite team, it doesn't matter. Everybody has their little territory and they want to control it and stop other people from trying to control it. Yep. The essence of the song is, uh, you know, live beyond the borders, you know, tear down the borders, live as one world. Yeah. And I've always interpreted it as a critique overall of colonialism in general, any kind of country that goes in and takes over another country and then always complains about the other country. (laughs) How they wish they were back home. Yeah, right. That comes up next. The the beer wasn't as good. Beer's better back home. (laughs) Right. So then we get into the chorus, the whole wide world, an endless universe, yet we keep looking through the eyeglass in reverse. I love that line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that means we, we have a small world view only concerned with our tiny little segment of the world? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Instead of looking through the magnifying glass to see things larger, we turn around the other way and you see things, every, everything's just too small and your view is completely narrowed. Don't feed the people, but we feed the machines. Can't really feel what international means. And that, to me, I'm thinking war machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me of that police line, too. What is it in, uh, what's the name of that song? Driven to Tears. The line is, um, too many cameras and not enough food. <laughs> right. Just reminds me of that. You know, I mean, there's always, there's always money and resources for something other than taking care of the people. And usually in this, in this song, it's about, you know, trying to colonize another territory at the expense of your own people. Exactly. And musically, I just love the way this song just builds and builds 
and builds on itself. It just gets more and more impactful as we go along. In different circles, we keep holding our ground in different circles. So the lyrics, I I never noticed this before. The first line is in different circles, which is two words, in different. And the second time he says in different, it's in different one word circles. Right. We keep spinning round and round and round. That's great. Good point. Yeah. So in different circles, two words, we keep holding our ground is that everybody's just kind of circling around each other, just trying to keep their own, but in different circles are what those circles are. They're indifferent to the suffering of the people in the other circles. <laughs> and then they keep just spinning round and round and round each other too. So it's like this vicious, well, it's a vicious circle, right? Mm-hmm. Of people who are separate and then indifferent to each other. Don't care about other people's needs, right? Yeah. Outside their own tribe. And the keyboard part right after spinning round and round is fantastic. You feel like you're spinning round and round. Yeah, it takes off. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you got, Alex has that screeching guitar on top of everything too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Great song. Fantastic. It's like he's arguing with the rest of the song. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know last time we talked about this song, Jer, we really focused in on this next section. We see so many tribes overrun and undermined while their invaders dream of lands they've left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Better people, better food, and better beer. Why move around the world when Eden was so near? Yeah. That whole verse is it's crystal clear. There's no ambiguity in that one. It's no. No, it's crystal clear exactly what's being said. Yeah. And it's true, you know what I mean? Like people go and conquer another country and then complain bitterly about everything from the food to the to the climate to the people. It's like, well, what are you doing then? Why why did you do this? Yep. If everything was so perfect at home, why aren't you content with being at home? Yeah. You know, why aren't you content with the things that you have? Why is conquest always the thing that's going to somehow fill this need? And it never seems to do it. And it's still going on today. Yeah, it still happens today. That's the amazing thing about all of Neil's lyrics is they're so relevant now and they were written 30 years ago. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you comment on the human condition. The condition of humans never seems to change very much, does it? <laughs> yeah, I think this album's 35 years old. Oh, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it is. Now you're making me feel even older. <laughs> and that's a tall order, right, Steve? <laughs> The bosses get talking so tough, and if that wasn't evil enough, we get the drunken and the passionate pride of citizens along for the ride. How great is that? I know. <laughs> so that that line to me, you now you could talk about Trump, but that whole line to me about the evil bosses and the drunken passionate pride, that reminds me of, you know, the the third break. Oh, hmm. wow. Interesting. I didn't think of that. You know, with the yeah. drunken passionate pride citizens along for the ride, whether the bosses are right or or wrong, just blindly following the leaders. Right. Or getting swept away, carried away Mm -hmm. by whatever wave is, is cresting above you. Yeah. They're just there for the ride. I mean, they, they have no, they'll just follow whatever, whatever forces is pushing them one way or the other. Exactly. And they're drunk. (laughs) (laughs) That's because they have better beer, Jer. They have better beer, right? They have that beer. They can't wait to drink it. (laughs) And they have zero control over it too. 
you know, they have pride in this ideology that they have no control over. Right. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Jingoism is a, is a, is, is a terrible thing. You know what I mean? Once you have pride in this larger process that you have no control over, you know, you latch your cart to that. I mean, that's just right. What else are you going to do? Right. You just, this is, this is where you're hanging your hat. Whatever this is, you're, this is the hill you're going to die on, whatever the movement is. And then once you do that, that's, I mean, it's game over for everyone. Right. And then you got to pull out your flag on Cinco de Mayo on St. Patty's day. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So I mentioned the music builds and to me, the lyrics do too. They just get more and more impactful. They shoot without shame in the name of a piece of dirt for a Mm. change of accent or the color of your shirt. Better the pride that resides in the citizen of the world than the pride that divides when a colorful rag is unfurled. Wow. <laughs> you can't, you can't hear it without singing. <laughs> I'm just surprised that there aren't more fans who are critical of this verse because it's pretty harsh. Yeah. Especially calling a flag a rag. Oh, he doesn't say it's not our flag. It's their flag. It's, of course, it's their flag, right? Yeah, it's their flag, not ours. Our flag <laughs> no. is fine. It's the other flag that's the rag. Ours is a flag. That sounds like a, a Carlin thing. Oh, my flag's a my flag's a flag. Your flag's a rag. Yeah, <laughs> but you know it's true. Right? I mean, they shoot without shame in the name of a piece of dirt. Yeah, and they shoot they shoot from thousands of miles away now. Yeah, or the color of your shirt. I mean, because that's. For a change of accent or the color of your shirt, the color of your shirt, you know, reminds me of uh, maybe gang wars. You know, and I mean, so he's talking about geopolitical things at the beginning. You know, they they shoot without shame in the name of a piece of dirt, but then they also shoot you for the color of your shirt. You know, if you're in the wrong neighborhood and you're wearing a red shirt when you're in a uh, blue shirt neighborhood or whatever, you're probably going to get jumped and and shot. I mean, the territories, people are just like, oh yeah, the, the, these this kind of action is only geopolitical, but it's not. It's local, too. The shirts, to me, always reminded me of, like, um, again, getting back to the Nazis. Then the Nazis have the, uh, the black shirts and the brown shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And again, if you're not in the, whatever, that group, the groups within groups, we could drill down even deeper, right? The groups within groups that are, don't get along. It's true. This song just cuts through it all, cuts through everything. And the music behind that section is so haunting. Getty's got this cool bass line and he's not whispering the the lyrics but in a lower tone totally agree <laughs> yeah and then he comes in at the end screaming the when a colorful rag is unfurled you can just hear it in his voice you can hear it in his voice the disdain he has for that kind of mentality and musically this song i mean we brought up a couple of things i mean you mentioned the screeching guitar that's just throughout this song alex is just on fire on this song. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. He ran his guitar through a few effects. That's for sure. Oh yeah. To give it that oriental jangly sound. And Neil's drums on the chorus are just insane. It's just a tour de force. This song. Now I have to go back and listen to see if I hear a snare. I guess, I, I guess there's no snare on this. <laughs> I found that quote. I was in a Canadian musician. Yes. December of 85. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's Giddy talking about uh, one thing particular to the drum part is that Neil used no snare. And in the middle section, we sampled my voice saying round and round, you know, where it goes round and round. 
Right. So that's sampled so they can play it live, I'm assuming. So, yeah. And where did you find this quote on 2112.net? Yeah, it's on um, <laughs> 2112.net <laughs> under, that tra- under the transcripts tab, Canadian musician, December 1985. The name of the story is uh, Baroque Cosmologies in Their Past, The Boys Focus on the Perfect Song. Wow. That's a good title for something. <laughs> they, they dig deep into the, in the entire album. Wow. I guess this begs the next question, Eric. Is this the perfect Rush song? There's more than one. <laughs> is it a perfect Rush song? Not the only perfect Rush song, but <laughs> you can't improve on it. No, you really can't. Well, yeah. Is, is that the definition of perfection? You can't improve on it? Yeah, that's it's, like, I, I think it, it is perfect. Yeah, that's a, that's a buttload of Rush songs, though. I mean, <laughs> that's, if that's the only metric, we, we've got a lot of perfect songs on our hands. It's true. You know, when we talked to you the first time, Eric, we talked about your book, Wandering the Face of the Earth. Why don't you give us an update on that? First of all, is there a new version of the book? So there is a second edition is already out. We, we sold out the first edition about a year ago. Within six months, it nice. sold out. And then the, due to the COVID pandemic, there was a delay in getting the reprint going. So the second edition is out now. It has a few corrections in it. and. There's always new tour dates that were forgotten from 1973, mm-hmm. 1969, and all those editions have been incorporated in it, and those are in the second edition. Meanwhile, we're already working on corrections for the third edition. Oh, wow. We don't know when that's going to go to press, but we are working on maintaining, uh, we have a, a file of all the latest editions that we have submitted already to Inside Editions for that third edition. So, so after the book came out, did you get a lot of submissions from people who were just like, you forgot about this date, you forgot about that date? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then the, we also got the, um, you forgot this date. My brother was there. I don't have a ticket, but he swears it was that date. Right. And again, we, we don't put it in there unless we have some sort of a verification. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we've, we've all had those fever dreams where we went to a rush show. <laughs> you know, another thing we didn't talk about when we talked about the book is your website, 2112.net. Tell us quickly how you got the idea, how you got started. Well, I started that actually back in 1998. Wow. And back then, are you guys familiar with the National Midnight Star, the newsletter mailing list that was really the, the only one of its kind way back then? Mm-hmm. And um, when I first logged onto the internet for the very first time, and I realized I wasn't the only Rush fan in the universe, <laughs> after going all, all, all through the internet looking for Rush resources, there were, you would not believe this, but there was no single Rush website that had pictures on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking album covers, high quality images. So when I first started my website, it was to create a gallery of album art to use as PC wallpaper. And also back then there was a, a lot of desktop themes. And that's where you would like, click on something and you'd like hear a little sound effect. And there were desktop themes for just about everything back then. And I started creating Rush desktop themes. And of course they get really annoying after a while. So you <laughs> stop using those sound effects. But when I named my, my website Power Windows, it's because you had the, the wallpaper effects and all the sound effects 
I had wallpaper and desktop themes for every album. And then through time, I, I added the tour book transcripts and all the liner notes, the tour dates. I started way back in the, the early 2000s. I had almost all the known tour dates that you still see today were on my website. So I've been maintaining that for over 20 years now. And now I don't do all the news like I used to. I used to keep up on all the latest Rush news, but really since they broke up, the latest Rush news is their latest reissue, what's coming out. Mm -hmm. Or you'll see a story that was originally published five years ago that's being reshared through one of the various classic rock magazine will reshare a story that they published five years ago. So it's not really news. So my maintenance now on my website is basically just keeping it up to date as far as all the latest releases or cover songs. There's still bands doing cover songs, Rush song, Rush mm-hmm. songs all the time, or Alex Lyson's latest guest appearance, <laughs> of which there's many. Well, we really appreciate you putting all the work into the website. It's been a resource for Rush fans for years, and we really appreciate you joining us today to talk about territories. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Hopefully I had one or two things to contribute. (laughs) I think quite a bit. Thanks so much, Eric. All right. Well, thank you. Joe, we've made it to track six on Power Windows. It's Middletown Dreams. So, Jared, to talk to us about Middletown Dreams today, we've got one of our former guests on the podcast from episode 85, field director of Time Stand Still, photographer, and Power Windows fan, Miller. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Good morning. It's, it's scar them all. <laughs> Whatever time it is, right? <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. And why don't we start out by you filling us in on your relationship with the album Power Windows. What does that album mean to you? Well, Power Windows was my first Rush album, um, and I got into them. I had a, a sort of surrogate older brother in a, a hero, which I kind of went into on the, the podcast we did. And I went out and got Power Windows completely sort of with no prior listening, no idea what to expect. Um, and I hadn't heard a single song. I bought the record, brought it home, had no idea what to expect because this surrogate older brother had told me that it would be um, fantastic and a great thing to listen to. So I did, and I listened to it, and I, it was nothing like what I was expecting, but I, I loved it pretty much straight away and then really, really loved it more and more as I spent more time with it. Now, do you think you would have become a fan had you started with a different album? Difficult to say, really. I think I probably would because I, I kind of approached it as a project, it, it depends which other album, because the other album, like I think the second album I got was 2112, because another of my surrogate older brothers I had seen in a 2112 t-shirt. 
So it would have been either of those records, and both of those I really enjoyed. I think I found Power Windows slightly easier to get into because it was it was of the era that we were in at the time. But um, I'm not sure. I think I lucked out in that. I mean, I know a lot of what you would call the um, the denim jacket brigade were not <laughs> enamoured with what they did on Power Windows, but I, I feel like I lucked out on that as a first record because I think it's one of their strongest. Um, I loved it. So we like to start out our conversations, Miller, with a quote from Neil, and I found this one on Canadian Composer. We talked about this with Eric Hansen and Territories just a few moments ago. Neil says, I use the exact thing which Territory warns against as a device in Middletown. I chose Middletown because there's a Middletown in almost every state in the U.S., including New Jersey, by the way. That's true. It comes from people identifying with a strong sense of neighborhood. It's a way of looking at the world with the eyeglass in reverse. I spent my days off cycling around the countryside in the U.S. looking at these little towns and getting a new appreciation of them. When you pass through them at 15 miles an hour, you see them a little differently. So I was looking at these places and kind of looking at the people in them, fantasizing, perhaps romanticizing a little bit about their lives. I guess I was getting even a little literary in imagining the present, past, and future of these men, women, and children. There was that romantic way of looking at each town, but also each of the characters in that song is drawn from real life or specific literary examples. Now, Jerry and I both grew up in pretty much Middletown, New Jersey, and I believe, Miller, your town is kind of a Middletownish town where you grew up too, right? I grew up in back of beyond town, really. Um, it was, um, it, it, it wasn't it, like we dream. I, I had to get on a bus for a few hours to get to Middletown. Um, it was, yeah, it was very, I mean, it was beautiful. It was by the coast, it, you know, down by the seaside and, you know, very, very lovely, but yeah, it was very, very cut off from the real world. So I think, that definitely resonated with me with this song, the fact that there was a yearning. And I, I was, I think I was about 15, which is the age where you start to wonder what you're going to do when school finishes and what's going to become of your life and what you're going to do. So this this really struck a chord. And I, I've got a bit of a theory with Middletown Dreams that it's, it's almost the middle song in a trilogy. And I think what started in subdivisions, exploring mm. the suburban experience, and he does, you know, nowhere is the dreamer. And then we sort of move on into Middletown dreams, and he is analyzing those dreams. And then I, I kind of, and this may be stretching it a little bit, but I kind of feel like the third song in that trilogy would be Mission, because he discusses what it's like to be fueled by those dreams and what a life that is dedicated to those dreams can actually be like and how it can be slightly different. And then the sort of, you know, if you, if you think of the kid in subdivisions who's desperate to get out and wants something else from life, and then you think of mission and he's saying if their lives were exotic and strange, they would likely gladly exchange them for something a little more plain, maybe something a little more sane. You know, he is sort of discussing what it's like to have lived a life powered by those dreams. So, like I say, it, it, it kind of feels like the middle song in a trilogy for me. Probably bollocks, probably had nothing <laughs> conscious or, you know, but I, I've drawn that line through those three songs and I'm sticking with it. 
I like that because in Mission 2, with that line you just said, you know, there's the sense like at the end of subdivisions of going back to something quiet, you mm. know what I mean? Something a little more sane. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, it's preceded by its cold comfort to the ones without it, yeah. to know how they struggled and how they suffered about it. And, you know, he's talking in Middletown Dreams about what a crazy thing it would be to walk out of your life and go and pursue your passions, you know. Right. And um, I also, in my five minutes of research, I did, uh, <laughs> I found that Canadian composer uh, interview and he talks about the writer, and I forget the guy's name, but apparently the, the story goes that it, it's somebody who became a famous writer who was working in an insurance company and literally stood up from his chair one day, walked down railroad tracks to Chicago or wherever his nearest big city was and started pursuing his dreams. And that I'd never really understood what the he's still heading down those tracks was, but mm. apparently that's it. Oh. Um, yeah, Sherwood Anderson is the name of the writer. And Neil says late in his life, Anderson literally walked down the railroad tracks out of a small town and went to Chicago in the early 1900s to become a very important writer of his generation. Wow. It's an example of a middle-aged man who may have been perceived by his neighbors and by an objective onlooker to have sort of finished his life and he could have stagnated in his little town. But he wasn't finished in his own mind. He had a big dream it was never too late for him, so he walked off and he did it. Wow. Exactly. How old is he? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's interesting because that first verse, Jerry, you remember we got an email from somebody who told us he thought it was about a bike store owner that he worked for. Yes. He told us this story, Miller, about how Neil came into the bike store and the owner of the store had a hidden bottle in the back mm. of the store. I've, I've heard that episode. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it, maybe that line came from Neil's experience at the bike store, but he kind of melded it with the Sherwood Anderson stuff. It could well be. And it, it, it could well be that he was, I also, I mean, it, I think he would definitely have been mulling over those, those themes and those thoughts. I did wonder before I'd ever heard that story. And also um, before I'd read that, uh, Canadian composer thing. I did wonder if he was thinking, and I, I'm sure having read that Canadian composer interview, I'm way off track on this, but I had wondered whether, because he was a salesman at his dad's parts store when he was That's a kid, true. wasn't he? Yeah, uh, he was. Like selling farm equipment or whatever. And I did wonder if it was his imagining of what he would have become if he hadn't gone off and done what he did, you know? Pretty much definitely that never entered Neil's head, I would imagine. But I, it, it could easily have been, you know, he could easily have said, okay, I tried music, it didn't work. And, you know, here's this this song, uh, this this job, and I'm doing it. And, you know, he could have been that guy as well. Yeah. Um, the guy in the bike shop, I love it as a story. I, I love it. I, I don't know how convinced I am that it's it's definitely true. I reckon this guy's boss may well have gone into the bike store but i think the the canadian composer interview sort of covers most of that first verse mm -hmm. um but yeah the the hidden bottle and the the, the sort of coloring the character in yeah, yeah. It, it could well be from that the thing about the people in this song is that i get the sense they're never going to do these things though 
you know, the first verse where he says about the, you know, the hidden bottle came out. First of all, it's a hidden bottle, so he's he's got a little bit of shame involved in drinking all the time, I guess, on the job. But then he says, but he's still heading down those tracks any day now, for sure. Any day. Absolutely. Uh, yep. And I I was going to sort of pose this as a question to the two of you, and I, I and you've you've kind of preempted it, but I, because I when I was a kid listening to this song and first getting into the record, there was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that all three of the people that he talked about were going to escape and they were going to go and do this thing. Yep. Um, and then when I came back to it, when you asked me to do this and I thought oh, I should listen to it again and you know really analyze it. And the verse that says it's understood by every single person who'd be elsewhere if they could, so mm -hmm. far so good and life's not unpleasant in their little neighborhood. I, I kind of thought, oh, maybe they don't. They don't. Maybe they accept what they've got and think it's too much of a risk to, right. to take off and do it. And I was, I went totally off on this sort of thinking, oh, maybe the song means something completely different to what I always imagined it did. And I actually thought, actually, maybe it's a little bit, not unkind, but it's a little bit sort of judgy. And he's sort of describing these people and, and thinking, yeah, but they're never going to do it, you know, and they're just going to sit there. And then as well as that Canadian composer interview, I found another interview with Neil during my extensive Googling of Middletown Dreams meaning um, <laughs> uh, just before we started. And Neil says, the song makes an interesting litmus test of the listener because he claims his intention or his belief when he was writing the song was that all three of them go off and do it and they have the courage and they go off and they follow their dreams. And he said it only came to him years later that people were interpreting it as that they don't and that they're, you know, the song is all about people who never follow their dreams. And he was like, it kind of reveals more about the listener. And I, I was like, well, I've been both when I first listened to it, when I was young and full of, you know, desire to get out and do something, you know, and plans for my future. I was like, ah, oh, you know, their dreams set them free and their, you know, their ambitions are what catapults them out of where they are to where they want to be. And then I came back to it as a middle-aged man going, nah, they're never going to do it. They're just going to sit there and keep drinking in the afternoon and just, you know, stagnate and whatever. But he claims in the interview that I read that it, it, it was the other way. It was that they do take their courage in both hands and walk down the railroad tracks. Hmm. Can I disagree with him on his own song? You, you absolutely can. You, yeah. My interpretation of it was both. See, I always thought that the three people in the song did get out and pursue their dreams, but the last verse was almost, hey, but if you're not one of those people and you don't make it, life's not so bad in your neighborhood. Hmm. You're great too. I think there might be something in that, actually. I, I think it might, because I, I thought that, verse is the thing that made me think now nah, they're never going to do it you know they're going to stick with the, the comfort and security of what they have and it, i found it so confusing you know that that had made me think that and then apparently that's not what the song meant and i was like well why put that line in so i think you might be onto something that that was the intent of that line was to sort of say well not everybody does and that's okay mm. and it doesn't you know, it's not a failure of, you know, of spirit 
to live another life. And I think that is also one of the reasons in Mission where he's he's saying, you know, for the ones without it, because stories about following your dreams are usually part of a trajectory that follows a very sort of cheesy Hollywood, you know, they're having a hard time, they hate their life, they do this really dangerous sort of thing and they go off and then all of their wildest dreams come true and their life is wonderful. And yeah. most people I've met who have been very successful are like, you have no idea how hard this was and you have no idea what I've given up, you know. And one of the things about success and particularly money, like I've always said that like money seems to be a complaint token. And if you've paid money for something, you have an unlimited right to complain about it in a lot of people's minds. And those same people believe that if you have received money, like if you have become enriched by this thing that you do, you can never complain and you can never say that your life has been difficult and you can never say that the paparazzi have made your life very unpleasant. You you know, it's like, well, tough luck, you're famous. Right, that, that's the cost. Yeah. That's the cost of entry. Yeah. Interesting. But I think Mission kind of does kind of have a second bite at the cherry on that intention of what that line says about you know so far so good and life's not unpleasant i think in mission he's sort of saying you know you've got no idea how hard we struggled and you've got no idea how often we would rather be going home at five o'clock in the evening and seeing our kids you know and mm -hmm. not being on the end of a phone in a different time zone and you know i i've had a small experience of a different kind of life and it is it is difficult <laughs> and it there are times where you're like this was a bad idea <laughs> and <laughs> you know there are many things in a life there is your career your family you know the people you love and care for and all of those different things and like i say you can be massively rewarded in your career and you know i've come across people certainly not in the the major bands that I've worked for, but I have heard stories of and sort of talked to p other people who've, who've worked with people who seem to have everything and are very unhappy, you know, and not, not really living the dream despite outwardly appearing to be living the dream, you know? Right. So I think he might've been getting at that in Middletown dreams in that verse sort of saying, you know, if you don't go off and do that, it doesn't mean that you failed. But it, you know, who knows? I, I certainly, I'm aware that I spent time with them and I don't want to try and come across as saying, well, what he actually meant, because I've got no idea. I've got no more idea than you or the man in, you know, in the next room. I've got no idea what he meant um, beyond listening to the song myself and reading the interviews. As he says later in Emotion Detector, sometimes our big splashes are just ripples in the pool. Mm. Right? I think it ties yeah. in with that a little bit too. Yeah. And I would imagine by this stage in their career, they've been through the struggle. They've had the enormous success, you know, with moving pictures and becoming that band that everyone was going to see that year. And then I remember reading an interview in, with him where he was talking about diminishing returns and saying every album you would see the audience is getting bigger or the 
you know, the sales figures getting bigger or you would be more satisfied with your playing or you would be more excited about what you'd achieved. And then, you know, maybe they're getting to the point in their career where they, they are like, well, we've, we've achieved. I mean, Pink Floyd talked about doing Dark Side of the Moon and then having achieved everything they wanted to achieve and not knowing where to go next. And it, it kind of taking the batteries out of the band mm. and, you know, maybe he is alluding to the fact that, yeah, they have done great stuff, but you know, he'd also like something else. He'd also like, you know, more of a, a settled life. Yeah. The words he uses though, make me think that these people aren't going to get out. You know, like I said, he's still heading down those tracks any day now for sure. That is not a very positive thing to say any day. I'm going to do this any and. Yep. We probably have seen a lot of people at home in the pandemic who have been dying their whole lives for a year, you know, of most social uh, engagements kind of canceled. Uh, yeah. This this is the year I'm going to, well, you know, get that six pack abs. Didn't didn't happen for a lot of people. You know what I mean? Like there's something yeah. you still need to do within yourself. It's not just the time. It's the, it's the work that has to be done as well. And then when he talks about the middle-aged Madonna, he says, but she'll go walking out that door on some bright afternoon to go and paint big cities from a lonely attic room. So that I always thought meant that she's just going to be holed up in her room at home. Hmm. But it could also speak to the fact that if she's going to be a serious painter, she's just going to be alone all the time hmm. in whatever room she's in. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, when I revisited the song, I saw it the way that you see it. I started thinking, oh, what am I going to talk about when when we do talk about this, I completely saw it as, you know, these people get out and it, it was definitely part of what inspired me to try and go and do something and, and leave the town that I was in and follow my ambitions and, and stuff like that. But I came back to it and I was like, oh man, these people don't, do they, they you know, and it, it's about the fact that I kind of saw it as maybe the, the dreams aren't important as signposts to what these people should really be doing, but that the dream was something to hold on to, to get them through, you know, I really don't know. I I feel a Twitter poll coming on. You know, uh, Miller and Jerry in that same Canadian composer article, Neil says that the third person in the song was slightly autobiographical. He'd be climbing on that bus, just him and his guitar, or in Neil's case, I guess, drums, to blaze across the heavens like a brilliant shooting star. Now, do you think, Jerry, that person, in your mind, got out and and realized his dreams? Because if it's autobiographical, clearly, clearly he did, because Neil did. Right. I'm trying to grammatically figure out the sentence, right? Because he says, one close, one far away. But he'd be climbing on that bus. So he would be climbing on that bus. If he could. But if he could. Is it heed or is it heel? I have heed. I have heed also. Okay. So he would be climbing on that bus, just him and his guitar. So does that mean that because the the line before it is a line where the the kid is dreaming. Mm. I just trying to figure out if this is still part of his fantasy that one day he'll be, he'll be going on this bus or if he actually will be someday. We never get to the someday, though. There's no someday. There's always, well, I mean, yeah, there is the someday, but there's never that day. That day is never represented. Or maybe the Neil that 
is in the song is the teenage Neil who still didn't know whether he was going to realize his dreams or not. Right. But I definitely saw the kid with the guitar as more hopeful than the other two because and I kind of saw him a, a little bit as an odd one out because the other two, it kind of felt like they had reached a point in their life where they were, you know, so far so good and life's not unpleasant. Whereas the kid has it all ahead of him. So right. anything could happen. And it's one of the great things about youth is that, you know, you have all these things that are possible. And it's one of the very sad things about getting older is thinking, that's not actually really going to happen, is it? That's, <laughs> that's, I should stop thinking about that because there's a brilliant Mark Maron bit where he just constantly calls back to the line, I don't know how much time I have left. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about the artist and the salesman is, you know, they are at a point. And the thing is, it's, it's much harder to take huge risks when you're much older, you know, when you're mm -hmm. a kid, if, you know, if you waste five years of your life on a impossible, ridiculous dream, you're still very young and you can still yeah. get on a, a straightforward track and all the rest of it. But it's really hard to do you know, when you're much older. So I, I, yeah, I always saw the kid as more likely to achieve than the other two. You know, maybe if the litmus test is between the optimist and the pessimist, I, I guess I'm the pessimist <laughs> because, well, because I always try to figure out what songs are really trying to say mm. and what people think that they're about or whatever. And one of my favorites is um, the song will come out tomorrow from Annie. Uh -huh. everyone always points to that song as being like this great song of hope. You know, this, this little girl was like, this song will come out tomorrow. But at the end, she says, you know, you're always a day away. Mm. Tomorrow's always a day away. The sun is never, ever <laughs> coming out. Does she say always or does she say only? You just ruined that song for me, Jer. <laughs> it says, well, I, I'll, I just pulled up the lyrics. It says, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll love you. It's YA. I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. I think ultimately this is one of the things that's so great about all music and all art. There's a, a quote that all art is a collaboration between the artist and the audience. Yeah. And there are many artists who won't discuss their lyrics and they're like, well, I could tell you what it means, but if it, if you've already decided it means something else, then that's going to ruin it for you. And I think that's, that's, that's really, really strongly true. Clearly, in this song, you know, it, it can mean very different things to different people and very different things to the same person because it meant something very different to me when I was a kid to when I was coming back to it. And it was only reading that interview where I was like, oh, I was right in the first place. And Jesus, my 15-year-old self got it right. And <laughs> I'm, you know, and I, in a very small way, I did go off and follow my dreams and do what I, you know, um, and yeah, I still came back to this song in my late forties going, nah, they're never going to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what does that say about me? You know? So guys, the lyrics are so amazing in this song. We forget that the music is just as amazing. And as always with a rush song, the music fits the lyrics perfectly starts out with a really groovy bass line from Getty and then just builds and builds from there. Your thoughts on the music of this song guys. One thing that really, really struck me when I, I listened back through this was how much, and it, it, it's pretty much the same for 
every song on this album, I think, is how much is packed in to a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. And every time a section repeats, it's different or there's another element or it's done in a different way. And I know they, they talked very consciously in interviews around Permanent Waves about trying to make things more compact and instead of making a song 15 minutes, getting 15 minutes worth of ideas into three or four minutes, you know. And it really struck me with this song how true that is. And I think this album, they really, really did. Every song is exploding in a hundred different directions with loads of ideas that all work together as a cohesive thing. But it's there's so much going on when you really delve into it. The section where um, they talk about the, the kid with his guitar, that's when Alex really starts kicking into high mm. gear in, in, of the, course. in the background there. I just yeah. love his the way he plays. And, you know, this is a, another great example of, of Neil, you know, breaking the stereotype of himself where he's not playing a million miles an hour. You know, he's, mm. he's uh, you know, he's got like the little rim shot part. I'm just not a really rim shot. That's the joke thing, right? But you know what I'm talking about. Like he's just. No, no, no. It's, it's, that's, is that, is that what it's a correct called? term. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's a very sedate part of the song. You know, where he's just like clicking away with this. He's not going crazy, which, you know, it's a lot of people don't realize it about Neil is that he's not always mm. Neil. <laughs> he's yeah, he's yeah. a drummer, you know what I mean? And drummers most often serve a song yeah. know, in the way the song needs. And in this part of the song, he's just doing that rim shot the whole time. Yeah, it's a very mature way to approach it. He yes. certainly wouldn't have done that in 1976, I don't think. But yeah, it is it is all in support of the song. but. Yeah. Like if you listen to the the sequenced keyboard parts, it's like that they they change from bar to bar. Mm -hmm. It's like in my head, if you you know, if I was just playing it on my mental jukebox, it, they would just be playing the same pattern all the way through the song. And then when you actually listen to it, it's like it, it's they just doing backflips through the song, and it's every time they move on to a new bar or a new sort of section, it it changes, and it is, you know. It's and like I say, I know there are loads of people who don't appreciate the the keyboard era, and it is it's very much of a time. But, but you know, big and I, don't get me wrong, I love big seventies rock guitars. But big seventies rock guitars are of an era as well. You know, they are of a time, and the keyboards they do sound a tiny bit dated in a in a way, but they're brilliant. You know, they're, they're so, and I know they had a guy in, Andy Richards, to do a lot of that, but it's so, so good and so well executed. And, you know, they really, it's so well crafted and constructed. It's, I love it. What about you, Steve? You were, what were you going to say? My favorite part of the song is when it goes from the dreamy chorus and Getty says, dreams transport the ones who need to get out of town. And then he repeats it out of town. And then it just, kicks right back into the next verse. <laughs> right. uh, it's just amazing how, how Rush does that. I don't know how they do it, but their transitions from verse to chorus, chorus to verse are just seamless and it drives the song along. And the same thing when he says, like a brilliant shooting star, and then Miller, he goes into that, that keyboard part. Hmm. Each verse and chorus builds on the next to exactly. a, a crescendo at the end. And it's yeah. just amazing to me and it, all of those parts you could easily 
stretch out into a five minute song, mm-hmm. you know, and it, mm-hmm. it right. clearly wouldn't be as good. But the fact that they have these amazing little bits that just pop up and mm-hmm. then disappear and it, the, the, to have the, the confidence to say, yep, all that needs to do is that section and then it goes away. It's great. It, it's really, really great. And it, it, it speaks to the craft and the, the composition and, you know, the, I would imagine there was an enormous amount of work went on, an enormous amount of throwing things away and listening back and really, really crafting it until it was, like I say, the people talk about permanent waves. They themselves talked about permanent waves and they were like, let's just work for impact and not stretch things out. But I really think, you know, they'd got so skilled at doing it that this might, for me, be the absolute high point of that particular sort of thing that makes them great and the other thing is i think that the band themselves loved this song the fact that they brought it back for the clockwork angels tour i would think all three of them had to be on board to bring Mm. this back i mean people always talk about how alex wasn't thrilled with the keyboard era but he is so brilliant on this record and they played i don't know how many songs on the clockwork angels tour from power windows i think alex loved this album Mm. i'll ask him when we talk to him yeah, dude. sure. Yeah. <laughs> one of the many questions. <laughs> the first one being, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I, Alex is, is brilliant throughout this record. I, I never, and like I say, I, I put this record on having never heard a note of a Rush song. And I didn't think, oh, this band haven't got a guitarist. You know, I mean, he's, he's doing really different things to, like I say, the the big chunky Les Paul, really thick, distorted stuff. It, it's all jangly and thin, and but it, it's exciting, you know. And his guitar work on this is is really really adds a lot to the songs. You know, there are points where he does feel absent, and perhaps on the next record more so than on Power Windows. But I definitely don't see him as absent or you know lacking in this record. It's it's great. And like you say, those the, the little squealy bits in the background, it's not big tongue waggling guitar solos or anything like that, but it's 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 like an enormous energy in the track, you know, and it, it does add something. As I was listening to the, the guitar work, those little parts, uh, they do sound a lot like uh, that kind of classic heavy metal squeal that, mm. you know, a lot of guitarists used in the 80s. If it is the same kind of technique, he's using it in a totally different way that works much better mm. than just a squeal every once in a while out of a guitar. Well, it, it it's the same, and I'm probably just laboring the point and saying the same thing over and over again, but it, it is that, that thing of you could do a long solo that's all squealy harmonics and, you know, dive bombs and whammy bar stuff, or you could just keep dropping in spices and it... Yep. It makes the the entire meal so much more enjoyable. That is so perfect. Well, I think we can all agree that Middletown Dreams is an incredible song. And Jerry and I, I know, agree that it was incredible for you to join us today, Miller, to talk about it. Thanks so much. Loved it. Um, Yes. And uh, I look forward to continuing to listen. So I will be hearing you again soon. Thanks, Miller. Jerry and I are still dreaming in Middletown. We're, we're still dreaming to get out. We'll see if we can do it. <laughs> Life's not unpleasant, though, in your little neighborhood, presumably. <laughs> That's true. Thanks, Miller. Nice one. Okay. So, Jer, 
just two amazing conversations about two amazing songs. Eric Hansen was the perfect choice for Territories. Yep. And Miller, the perfect choice for Middletown Dreams. I mean, can it get better than those two conversations were? No. This was this was such a great idea, Steve. I think I've said it on every episode so far. Such a great idea. Now, here's the question I have. Did we pick the perfect person for every song, or would Miller have been perfect for any song on Power Windows? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is that so many people love every song on this album. Yeah. So it, it's really kind of hard to tell. I think some people, it, we picked them because it was their favorite songs. And I think we just happened to ask Miller, and this happened to be one of his favorite songs. So I don't know. He was the last person we asked for this episode. And the only song that was left was Middletown Dreams. And, and he just happened to love it. And he knocked it out of the park. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Eric Hansen and Miller at TheRushcast at gmail.com. Lex did the open and close. He's brilliant. And Jerry, I hope you have a brilliant quote for us. Of course I do. Of course you do. It's understood by every single person who'd be elsewhere if they could. So far, so good. And life's not unpleasant in their little neighborhood. It really isn't. Our lives are fine. They're great. Take it easy. All right, see you.